Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Stand with me and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. I am really looking forward to the men's conference this this Saturday. Some amazing speakers, um, a, a pastor from Calvary Tacoma up in Washington. His name is Brian Hedrick and a great guy. And Kelly Graham, he's a pastor of Calvary in Salem. Great guy, just a just powerful Bible teacher. And then um, one that I'm really looking forward to because he's just so much there's so much life in him. His, his name's Luke Frechette, and he's from South Beach Church, the Calvary Chapel out on the coast. And um, I, I think we're just going to be fed God's word, man. Like, and that's what we need. We, we need to be encouraged and challenged, but we need more of God's word. And how does it apply specifically to us as men and dads and husbands and leaders? Um, so I hope that you will plan to join us Saturday. So with that, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 We're going to finish this chapter, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? <laughs> I don't know how, to, how, how Paul says that. What? Are you kidding me? Um, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world." So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. You may be seated. As a church, Calvary Southeast, we have a statement that is not meant to just be a great statement, though it is but a vital reminder for all of us, and that is this, Christ-centered and... One more time, Christ-centered. Amen. That is that we know if we're going to be a truly authentic church, like an expression of the church of Jesus Christ, then we must at all costs remain Christ-centered in all we do. We must keep Jesus as the primary focus of our church. Our church is all about Jesus. It's all uh, to him. It's all for him. It's all by him. It's all about Jesus. 
But the other aspect to that saying, that quote, that the words written on the, the wall in the lobby is others minded. And it's because we're all about Jesus that we look at his life and ministry as a model and example for us. And what was Jesus all about? People. So we know that our ministry here is not just to know about Jesus, but in light of who Jesus is, we know that he has called us to a mission to serve and love and sacrifice for people. It's not about us. Ministry is not about me and my wants and my happiness. It's about glorifying and exalting Jesus, loving Jesus. And in response to his love for us, we love one another. But he's our focus. But as we've been seeing in our study in 1 Corinthians, um, we've been learning how to follow Jesus in everyday life. The church in Corinth that Paul was writing to had gotten off track. They've been more influenced by the world than they were influencing the world, and they're losing their focus. What really matters in life and ministry? Last week, Pastor Kevin shared with us what it looks like to follow Jesus in the church, and he laid out the authority structure that God has given to us. And I just wanted to say real quick, he did a great job. I didn't force him to teach that passage, okay? Like, if you were here last week, you're like, what is he going to say about head coverings for women? Like, this is crazy. I was telling him this morning, as I was reading this week, you know, that passage of scripture is probably one of, and this is Bible commentators saying this, one of the most difficult passages to expound upon and teach, like an interpret. So um, he did a great job in that. So I, I just want you to know, he did a great job, but he chose that passage. I didn't choose it for him. <laughs> But this morning, we're going to continue in, in light of that theme, like following Jesus in the church, specifically around our gatherings together, even more specifically like around communion, the Lord's table, because we, we hear, we, and I'm going to use those terms interchangeably this morning, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, or communion. Maybe you grew up Catholic or in, in other church traditions, maybe you call it the Eucharist. Um, but it's resulting around these elements that we hold in our hands or you have sitting behind, uh, beside you this morning. But let's look at verse 17 as we dive in verse by verse. It says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now you think about this church in Corinth. As we've been saying week after week, like they did a lot of like, write things like the wrong way. And you think of the, the, the writer to Hebrews, like he would say, hey, don't forsake the fellowship, the gathering together of the brethren, right? Don't forsake the assembly, right? So these, this church in Corinth, they're doing that, but they're, or they're not doing that. They're abiding by that. They're like, they're, they're gathering together, yay. But Paul, he calls them out and, he, and he's saying, you're doing more harm than you are good when you gather. So yay that you're gathering, but you're doing a bad job at it. Like, why are you even gathering? And he goes on in verse 19, he says, for in the first place, so there's many things that he wants to, to go at them with. He's, he's wound up. He says, the, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, he says, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be become evident among you. Now, I want to zoom in on this phrase real quick in verse 18, when it says, when you come together as the church. Again, he's talking about the church, the body of Christ, gathering together for worship. Now, let me ask you this morning, what is the church? What is the church? Now, there's many, I mean, we could say probably many different things to describe um, the church's functions and the, you know, the, maybe the primary uh, function of the church. And I would say this, this isn't like a, a, a complete, like, understand, like full understanding or picture, but I wanted to narrow it in a little bit. And I would say this, a church is a family of sinners saved by grace who gather for worship, scatter for mission, and do everything for the glory of God. Let me say that one more time. A church is a family of sinners saved by grace who gather for worship, 
scatter for mission and do everything for the glory of God. As we just talked about, even Kevin brought it up last week and the week before, like whatever you do, eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. We're in that same vein. That's what a church is. Listen, a church is not a country club. It is not like you go, you see, like you drive McLaughlin and you see like the Elks Club. You're like, sweet, on Pheasant Court, we have Calvary Chapel Country Club or whatever. Like that's not what a church is. A church is not an event. It's not a building. I know a lot of people are like, hey, I'm going to the church or, or I just drove past the church. Um, no, listen, we are a family. We are a people who have been adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ into a family. We were orphans, the Bible tells us, and we were brought into the palace, given a seat at the king's table. How amazing is that? We were sinners. We are sinners, saved by grace. We're broken. Each and every one of us are broken. But the good news this morning is that we're in the process of Jesus making us new redeeming us, sanctifying us. And guess what? He's doing that in all of us together. Like it's not like an isolated event, like Tim's over in the corner and Jesus is working on Tim. The Lord's like using me in Tim's life and Tim in my life. And we're doing this together. We're growing together as a church family. Listen, a church is not a group of people who have it all figured out. If that's the impression that you get of the church or, or that we're putting on, Unfortunately, I hope that's not. That's wrong. A church is not a people who don't struggle anymore. That's, that's no, we struggle. Unfortunately, we do. I do. But we're family. We stick together. We support one another. We love each other. This is why Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday, we call the meeting a church family meeting because we believe these words that we're not an organization. We are a family. Now, why does coming together, when he says, when you come together as a church, why does coming together matter? Why is that important? You see, the Greek word for church there, and you probably know this if you're a Bible student, is ekklesia, literally means assembly or gathering. It's what we're doing right now. But if you read through the New Testament, you recognize very quickly that the church isn't just a gathering. Technically, we don't go, go to church. We are the church. And we gather as the church to worship the Lord. And so what do we do as we gather? Again, we gather for corporate worship, what we were just doing a second ago. Corporate worship. When we gather together as a church... We gather for corporate prayer. That's why we have prayer teams that will be up here after, um, at the end of this, the message. Just we, we pray together. We read God's word and we proclaim God's word corporately together. And also we receive communion together. Now, as a church, the Sunday morning gathering is important, but it's not everything that he has called us to. Again, we gather for worship but then we scatter for mission and we go out and we live our lives for Jesus every single day of the week. That's what he's called us to. So not just on Sundays, and we've been talking about this the last few weeks, we don't just live for Jesus on Sundays, though that's good and you should, but on Mondays we live for Jesus. On Tuesdays, we live for Jesus. On Wednesdays, we live for Jesus. On Thursday, we live for Jesus. On Friday, we live for Jesus. And on Saturday, who do we live for? Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Listen, we live for Jesus with all of our lives, every day of our lives. Yes, we gather for church on Sunday, and that's crucial. But when we go out, we're sent by God above the words in the, in the lobby doors that go outside of our building. It says you're now entering the mission field. Again, very intentional placement of those words. It's to be a reminder that we are built up here. This is our fueling station. We're built up, we're encouraged, we're strengthened by the word of God, empowered by his spirit to do what? Just sit at home. No, no, yeah, you guys are right. To go out and be part of the mission that he has called us to partner with him in. To be salt and light. How are you going to do that in your flesh? No, that's why we come here. To be built up, to be strengthened, to be encouraged. How are we going to be true lights in our dark workplaces in our flesh? No, that's why we need to be filled once again with the Holy Spirit. And so again, church is family. It's family. And Paul says to this church family in Corinth in verse 18, he says, I hear that there's divisions among you. 
And we're going to discuss that in more detail in just a second. But as we've already discussed in our study this far, the church in Corinth was known for their divisions. All the way back in chapter one, Pastor Doug um, taught on it, and Paul's rebuking the Corinthians for dividing over personality cults. Some in the church were divided. They're like, hey, I love Pastor Paul, and I want to go to Pastor Paul's church. And the other, the other guys were like, no, I want to go to Pastor Apollos' church. And then the other group was like, no, Pastor Cephas, like he was way better than all of them combined. And then you had like the really religious, like snooty people who were like, well, I'm just team Jesus, so I'm just going to sit in the corner and just be fed by Jesus or whatever. You know, like they, this church was divided. They were so off track. And instead of being Christ-centered and others-minded, they were self-centered. And they were inconsiderate as a church. And he says in verse 19, because of your divisions, he says, there's many factions among you. So Paul here, he's not condoning, and you can read that rest of that verse, he's not condoning church splits. Like, yeah, this, should, this is a good thing. But rather, he's saying that because of the carnal conditions that were happening in the church, that it was inevitable that factions would take place. You know, in times of crisis, in times of, of difficulty, mature and godly leaders would rise up and lead. Something's wrong, something's in error, and someone bold enough who knows the truth stands up and says no. And those who are mature along with him, as godly with him, they join with him, they stand with them. But to say the least, the church is super divided. They're not unified at all. And Paul here in verse 20 is getting ready to expose them for their divisive actions. It says, therefore, because of all of that, when you meet together, because you're divided, church, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, he says, I shall not praise you. Now, let me set the context real quick. When the believers in Corinth came together to share in the Lord's Supper, it wasn't uh, just communion like we do it today, okay? Like we have, the, we have an actual cracker this morning, <laughs> like, and maybe real juice. I don't know what's in there, but like, you know, it wasn't like what we're doing this morning. For them, this was an entire meal. This was a feast that they would come and receive the Lord's Supper in. And per perhaps towards the end of the dinner, they would uh, do more of the Lord's Supper and, and communion. But they would call this an agape feast or a love feast. And we find that in Jude verse 12. It's agape, which means love. Or love feasts. And these love feasts were designed for the whole church to gather together on a weekly basis. It didn't matter who you were, it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, educated, uneducated, everyone coming together, sharing this meal, receiving communion together. And typically, the wealthy of the church would throw the feast, and everyone, even the poorest, again, the poorest of poor, would come and get to celebrate. And the idea was that the more affluent members of the church would share their abundance of food with the less fortunate. And women and children and even slaves, they all got to participate and partake in this. And this is amazing. Families got to feast together. This was simply like gospel-driven love and hospitality on display. You know, I think about the early church in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Let me read it for you. This was their testimony. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing it and the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So these love feasts or these agape feasts were intended to be a practical demonstration of unity and celebration that crossed all boundaries and barriers. And when Paul leaves Corinth, he leaves it in the hands of others, their agape feasts seem to have fallen apart. And here Paul is calling them out. And there's, there's at least two major problems going on with the church in Corinth here. The first thing is, and Paul lays, lays out this, that they're getting drunk at church. 
Okay, that's a problem. I'm like, they're getting drunk at church. It's like, not good, right? They're getting drunk at church on communion with the wine that they were drinking. Like, double not good, right? Like, I don't need this morning to, like, expound upon that and, like, contextualize that for you and look that up in the Greek. Like, you just don't do that. Like, that's wrong. But check this out. Check this out. That's not even the biggest problem that they were facing here. Like, think about how bad it must have been in Corinth if people are getting drunk in church and Paul's like, but the real thing of which I'm like, taking issue with you is about this. And that's how messy this church is. But the real problem, yes, drunkenness, you know, on community, that's, that's a problem in all regards. But the real problem is that they're dividing based on who's rich and who's poor. Hospitality, in the tank in Corinth. Paul says, some are hungry and some are getting drunk. He's saying some don't have food and others have more than enough. Some have houses and it says those who have nothing. So that there's this, there's this uh, status kind of issue going on, socioeconomical kind of issues, division going on. But, you know, imagine the, the agape feast or the love feast like an old school potluck. Now I hate potlucks, but like just imagine it like an old school church potluck. But like you have, but what was happening is that you had like the rich people coming early in the day and they would bring their like bougie, like, you know, charcuterie board that they spent like hundreds of dollars on from Whole Foods and they're drinking their wine and they're, they're having a good time. And then like the poor people were coming in a little later. They didn't have so much, like they're eating like oyster crackers and drinking milk like together. Like that's the difference going on here. They're divided in, in the way that they're receiving the Lord's Supper. Now, their houses would have been um, like this. Let me, in the first century in Corinth, you know, our homes today are set up mainly for like privacy. We have like boundary lines. We have tall fences. Like, like this is my stuff. I'm shutting in. Like, um, but in their culture, their homes were often open to the public. They had open courtyards and inside a home in, in Corinth in the first century, um, you would have had a dining room that would have sat maybe nine to 10 people. But in that dining room, you know, would open up to an atrium, which was an open air part of the house in the middle of the home that would have access to all the different parts of the home. And that would be much larger. So in the, in the dining room, you had nine to 10 people. Maybe in the atrium, you had around 30 people. And so uh, what they did typically just in Corinth in the city or at a feast or at a dinner is the Corinthians would have their most esteemed guests, right? Probably the elite of the elite, right? Probably rich people um, in the dining room. They would have nine to 10 of these really well-to-do people and they would have all the good food and the, and the good spread. And then in the atrium, you would have just the lower class people. They would get the scraps or, or whatever. Maybe they're bringing their oyster crackers and that's all they got to eat, you know, at this dinner party. And so what's going on in the church, that's the culture. What's going on in the church in Corinth is that they're acting like the Corinthians. And as we've been seeing throughout our study, the culture was having a greater influence on the church than the church was having on the culture. They were dividing based on their status, how much wealth they had or didn't have. And so all the rich people who were eating, they were eating all of the food. And then you had the poor people who didn't have any food to eat. And again, the sad reality in Corinth was that the church looked more like Corinth than they looked like Christ. When they would get together, the rich people would, you know, they would eat over here. And the poor people, they would eat over there. Again, they're just acting like the world, doing as the Corinthians would do. And I want you to see what's happening here. Think about how backwards this is. You know, you, you think about the Lord's Supper, it's a meal that commemorates the most selfless act in the history of humankind. And yet they're celebrating the selfless act in a very selfish way. They're more concerned on my comfort, my rights, my dinner plate, my stomach, my flesh. Communion is a way that you and I remember our unity in Christ. And they're remembering this unity by dividing. And it's backwards. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim and we hold on to is meant to create a culture of hospitality, love, and unity. I think of Romans. Paul would say in Romans 15, therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, you just think about, church, how did Christ welcome you? 
Did he say, like, clean up your act before you come? No, he said, come as you are. Did Christ say, well, you can come, but just, you know, sit over there where your kind is, okay? Don't, don't associate with my other children that I like more. No, no, he said, come and be part of our family. No strings attached. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. The gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it reconciles us to one another. But what the church in Corinth is doing is completely anti-gospel. It's an anti-gospel culture. So this church had division issues. I want you to notice, though, how Paul responds. Okay, this is important. How is Pastor Paul going to correct the error of their ways. Because it would be easy for Paul to just slap a Band-Aid on the main issue here. It would be easy for Paul just to say, okay, you know what? There, there, there's this, division, this divisiveness going on, this division. Um, let's pull up the seating chart. And he gets the whiteboard out and says, okay, we're just going to intermix everyone. And okay, you, you make 100,000, you go here and you make 1,000. You, you know, like, and I'm going to just start in my flesh kind of, cre you know, creating this blend of the church and I'm going to fix this. And, you know, everyone's going to be able to eat because now here's the, my, my new measuring spoons and everyone gets the same amount of, like, he could have done that, but he doesn't do that here because that would only be a band-aid to what was going on in the heart. Listen, Jesus is about your heart. He's about my heart. He's not about just temporary solutions. He's not about behavior modification for your life. He's about your heart. He wants full possession of your life. So Paul does not put a Band-Aid on it. No, 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 no. He says, you need a deeper understanding of the gospel, Corinth. And it takes place in this tangible meal. Look at verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul here in this section is reminding them of the true meaning of this supper that they're called to celebrate together. And here Paul is, is talking about how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But you know, here's the thing. Apart from the context of the Old Testament, you would they would have completely missed the meaning of this. They would have been like, so wait, wait, wait. So this bread that's been broken, like this is Jesus' body? Like, it's for us. Like this, this cup that's filled with wine, like this is for, this is Jesus' blood. Like what's going on here? Now, Jesus, when he used these words, his, the, uh, his disciples, they knew exactly what he meant because when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was taking place as they were celebrating the feast of, you guys know? There you go, Passover. And Passover was what? It was a meal that Israel would celebrate every year. And it was a way for them to remember the amazing deliverance that God had done in their people from Egypt, delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And let me recap that, that story for you. If you're just newer to the Bible, you're like, I don't know anything about Egypt. And like, you know, like what, what did God do for Israel? Israel was a nation enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And they cried out one day. They had been crying out, God, would you deliver us? God, would you deliver us? And God well, he showed up and he heard their cries. He's merciful God. He's slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness. He heard them. And to, in order to set them free, God had to confound Pharaoh. He had to go up against Pharaoh and defeat Pharaoh and judge Pharaoh. And so God brought judgment upon Egypt and he did it through 10 plagues. And there you have, if you read through the book of Exodus, you have frogs and hail and gnats and all that stuff. And it might sound like a weird sci-fi movie or something like that or story. But um, what God was essentially doing is that all of those things represented Egyptian gods. And God was saying, listen, I will take down all of them so that you know that I'm with you and I am the one and true God. But the 10th plague came. And the 10th plague was the killing, the death of the firstborn in each home. And so God told his people, 
the nation of Israel, to take a sacrificial lamb, a spotless lamb, and to sacrifice it then, and to shed the blood, and to paste the blood, spread the blood, smear it over the doorposts of every home. And so when the angel of judgment, the angel of death, would pass over all of the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb. And that night, that's what happened. The angel of death came and it brought judgment on Egypt, but it passed over those homes that were covered in the blood. And God's people, then we know, they went out, they crossed through the Red Sea. God delivered them into the promised land. And for years, God's people would have celebrated with a Passover feast and they would remember, listen, we were the people that God redeemed from slavery, We were the people that were in bondage, in captivity, and yet God has made a covenant with us and we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And so this year, they sat down on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the upper room and Jesus took bread and he says, guys, this represents my body, saying I am the spotless lamb. And this cup signifies my blood, the blood that covers us so that we're spared the judgment and we're set free from our sin and death. And Jesus said, this covenant is the, is the new covenant in my blood. And a covenant is an unbreakable bond. So God is saying, I am, will never leave you nor forsake you. We are bound to him by his grace. God's like, I'm not going anywhere. And so what we learn, though, from this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is the Passover lamb who delivers us from death, not from slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. And and his death brings victory, not over Pharaoh, but over Satan himself. And his death brings us not into the promised land, but into eternal life, into his kingdom. Amen? Amen? Listen, if you've been set free by Jesus, would you just clap your hands together? And we are called to remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we receive the Lord's Supper, and it's important, again, I don't want to split hairs over this, but I know from in my own heart, I try to make an awareness of this. We don't take communion, okay? We receive communion, and there's a difference there. So when we receive the Lord's Supper, we reflect on his death, we rejoice in his grace, And not only does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me, but he calls us to proclaim his death. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we receive God's grace through communion, but it's also, it's used as an expression for us, for our faith. We proclaim, he says, the death of Christ. That word proclaim means to Preach. So each of you this morning, you have the little, the little communion packet. You guys become preachers today. You're like, no, not me. Don't put me on stage. Like, you know, you guys are preachers. You're proclaimers to everyone in this room watching you eat the bread and drink the cup. You're proclaiming, you're preaching what Jesus has done in your life. There's so much significance to this. And so Paul here, he's reminding them of the gospel. And in essence, he's saying, Corinth, This is what it looks like to follow Jesus rightly in the church, to honor Jesus at his table. Remember his sacrifice, but he goes on in verse 27. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Here Paul is talking about receiving this communion in an unworthy manner. He's talking about those who eat and drink without first judging the body, without examining the hearts. So what does it mean? What does it mean to receive communion without first judging the body, without examining the heart? What does it, what does it mean to take communion without, in an unworthy manner, as Paul just said? What does that mean? It could mean one of two things. One, where you're just going through the motions. You're just going through the motions. You come to church, you know, you do the things, you sing the songs, you stand when we tell you to stand, you sit when we tell you to sit, Right? 
you, you smile when you, well, we don't tell you to smile, but you smile, you know, you do all those things. And then when it comes to communion, you say, okay, you know, I'll participate. I'll peel back the, the you know, two layers, one on the bottom first this week, by the way. And then I'll, t- I'll do the one on top and I'll participate. You know, you just kind of do it mindlessly. You know, give me, give me a, you know, I take the little wine, take the little, the little bread as one president famously just said a couple years ago. Like, you, you know, that's all it is to you, right? You're just mindlessly doing it because you're supposed to do it when you're at church. But another way would be just straight up hypocrisy. And that's what you see going on in the church of Corinth. They're being divided. They're not being loving towards one another. They're simply living lives uh, uh, contradictory to the gospel. And for you and I, you know, that would just be us going out. You're just not genuinely following Jesus in everyday life, right? You're living for yourself. You give lip service on Sunday mornings when you're here, but then you do your own thing every day of the week. You live for Ryan. You live for Tom. You live for who, put your name in there. But then you come to church though next Sunday. And you say, well, I guess I need some forgiveness for a couple of things that I did this week. And, and, but that's basically hypocritical. And so we need to be aware of receiving communion in such a way that doesn't first examine our hearts. I think of the psalmist David who said in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And he doesn't stop there. He says, and see if there be any grievous way in me And if there is, he says, and lead me then in the way of everlasting. Coming before the Lord. This is what it means to examine our hearts. Coming before the Lord in all humility and saying, Lord, is there anything in my life that is grieving you? Is there anything in my life that I'm idolizing, that I'm holding on to? Lord, would you search me? Where my wife sees, (laughs) would you go deeper? (laughs) What only my coworkers can see and what pastor, you know, Ryan can see. Would you search even deeper, Lord? And would you, would you weed out, Lord, those things? I just want to honor you. I want to honor you. Would you forgive me? Would you change me? Lead me in the way of everlasting. He says in verse 30, for this reason, he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That is, many have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not have been judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He's literally saying, church, that some of the Corinthians, because they haven't examined their own hearts, because they haven't been a good judge of their, their, their thoughts and motives and the intents of their heart. He says, some have gotten sick, some have gotten weak, and some have even died. Now, you're probably expecting me to explain that part away. You're like, all right, Ryan, tell us like what it meant in Corinth. And then like, what does this look like for us in 2022? Because it can't mean the same thing, right? Like clearly, like I, I'm not dying and I've done this, you know, whatever. Listen, I'm not going to do that this morning. What I actually want us to do is feel the weight of this. And I want to ask you and I want to ask myself, do you take this seriously? Do we understand the weightiness, the sacred significance of what we're doing each time we receive communion? Listen, it is my prayer. I grew up in the church. I understand what it's like to kind of just go through the motions. We, we do these things because we've always done them and you have cracker first, bread, you know, juice. And my prayer is for all of us that we would all have a reverent awe of what's taking place when we come to this table. Think about this. If you're invited over to dinner with someone, the more powerful the person is, the serious you would take it, right? Think about this. If your coworker invites you over for dinner, some of you would probably just say no, but like, you know, say you went... (laughs) 
Some of you are retired. You're like, I don't have coworkers. It's been like 20 years. But your coworker invites you over for dinner. You go. And, you know, you're just kind of thinking to yourself, no big deal. Like, I can be a few minutes late. You know, I can, I can run an errand real quick. I don't really care what I'm wearing. Like, I'm just going to wear, like, my, my, my hoodie and my shorts and my flip-flops. And you're just going to go enjoy the barbecue, right? But your boss then invites you over for dinner. You're probably not going to be late. You're probably going to be like, you're going to talk to your kids in the car on the way there. You're going to be like, kids you screw this up, you're dead, you know, whatever, you know, whatever his parents say, like best behavior. But the CEO of the company happens to get your number and invite you over for dinner. You take it a lot more serious, right? Listen, right? All right, the king of England invites you over for like dinner. You're probably going to show up a, a, a week ahead of time so you're not groggy. For, like, you know what I mean? Listen, the God of the universe has more power than any CEO, actually all CEOs combined, and he has invited us to his table, to his banqueting table, to supper with him. How can we not take this with utmost seriousness, and how can we approach this table with no reverence? Lord, give us an awe, give us a deep gratitude when we come before your table and and we participate and receive communion. And on God, church, I am guilty of this. I'm not preaching at you. I'm like, I'm hearing this and I'm just like, Lord, how many times have I not checked my heart, examined my heart? I've gone through the motions. Look at verse 33. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, he says, wait for one another. Paul is saying, rather than disregarding the members of the congregation that have little food or no food to bring to these love feasts, he's saying they should not only share with these poor people, but they should also wait to eat until they have been served. Wait. You know, I think of Paul's words in Philippians 2. We've been quoting Philippians 2 a lot. But I think it's super important. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I, I, I did the New King James on purpose because um, I grew up reading that. And I love that term, lowliness of mind. Listen, some of us here this morning think a little too highly of ourselves. You just come to church and you think everything's expected. You know, everything's going to just be dialed in, ready for us just to sit in the purple chair, sing the songs, do the, you know, dance the dance, do the thing, and leave. Some of us think a little too highly of ourselves. And Paul is calling the church in Corinth to lowliness of mind. Would we esteem others better than ourselves? He says, if anyone is hungry, in verse 34, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the remaining, he says, I will arrange when I come. He's just exhorting the the rich in the church, those who have a ton of food. He says, guys, if you're coming to these love feasts, it's all about being Christ-centered and others-minded, right? And you're coming and you're just like, oh man, look at these, look at the, all these meats on this charcuterie board. Like, I'm hungry. I'm not going to wait for everyone to get that. Like, I'm just going to gorge. He's like, dude, if you're hungry, just eat at home. Because you're causing judgment upon yourself. You're not loving and caring for one another. Eat at home. Like, this is ridiculous. He says, otherwise, this unloving, selfish act might result in the Lord's judgment on you. These are strong words from the Apostle Paul to this church. And I believe they're strong words for us this morning. That as we come, this, even this morning, to the Lord's table, and Pastor Josh is going to come up and lead us in worship, we're going to do it a little different this, this morning. But I want us right now to pull out our Elements. You don't have to do the. You don't have to pull the tabs yet, but because um, we're going to do it in just a second. But I want us right now, as we hold these emblems, these elements, these reminders in our hands, I want us to reflect, and I want to close as we hold these things with a big picture of all of this for us. You know, how can we follow Jesus and honor Jesus in how we receive communion? Because I think oftentimes 
We have a narrow and a small view and we think, okay, in receiving of communion, like I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna remember that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And like, that's true. That's at the heart of it. But there's so much more church. There's so much more when we come to these and look at these elements. And I'm gonna borrow some of these points from Warren Wearsby, a lot smarter guy than I am. But I just wanna close with some of his words. He says, when we come on a day like today, we ought to number one, look up. So when you come to church and you've been given, served communion, look up, look to God. This is an act of worship. And so we ought to reflect on God's holy love that he has for you. So we look up. Our focus is Christ-centered. But secondly, we are to look within, as Paul's been exhorting the church in Corinth, examine yourselves. So when Josh is leading worship, it's not just necessarily a time killer. You know, we used to like pass out the elements, you know, pre-COVID days. It was a long time ago. And we're like, Josh would like lead us in worship. And, you know, sometimes you think, okay, as soon as it's all been passed out, then Josh can be done and the pastor can lead us in. No, no, there's a specific intentionality that comes when Josh is going to lead us in music. This is our time to pause. We've been confronted with the word of God. We've been called to respond in worship and responding by receiving communion. And it's our time as we lead in this song to examine ourselves, to examine ourselves, not to examine our hearts to see if we're worthy or not to receive. That's not it. We're worthy because of Jesus. But to examine our hearts to see, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to have a right heart before I just, I don't want to eat and drink judgment. I want to confess sin. I don't want to take this lightly. So we examine our hearts. And if there's sin, we confess sin. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. And my favorite part is to clean, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So when we do that, we confess sin and the blood of Jesus washes us once again and makes us clean. And where there's pain and sorrow in your life, like we don't need to run from the pain and sorrow and just be like, oh, happy in Jesus. No, no, no. We take our pain and sorrow to the Lord in this act and say, Jesus, you, you bore everything. Like you know what we're going through. The Bible tells us we, we have a, a, a high priest who can sympathize in our weakness. And so we come to Jesus, examining our own hearts in light of that. And then, and then thirdly, so not only do we look up and, and look to the Lord, and we, then we secondly, we look in, and examine our hearts, but then we look around. And this is probably gonna be a little different for us because you know we're kind of individualistic in our society. But when we receive communion, it's not something that we just do and um, you know, just individually by ourselves, but it's something, listen, church, that we do together. We do together. When we receive the Lord's Supper, we should, we should look around, even the room, not like in a distracting way, but we should look around and rejoice. In fact, man, God has redeemed him and her and me, and we're in this together. Like we were paupers, and now we're feasting at the king's table. You know, there's an element of obviously reverence when it comes to communion of awe, of just kind of like a somber, just thinking of like our sin and the forgiveness. But listen, it shouldn't stop there. When we participate and partake of this supper, it should cause our hearts to rejoice. Jesus, you have saved me. You have set me free. You have redeemed me. You have taken the shackles off my feet and now I can run fully for you. And so when we come to the table each time, and this morning, we're remembering what Jesus has done. He was the spotless lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin. And then fifthly, we look forward. Actually, we look, we look sorry, I missed one. We look back, we look at Christ's death for you. But I kind of covered that with looking around. But lastly, we look forward we hope in the return of Jesus. When Jesus, you know, instituted the Lord's Supper, 
He said, I will not eat of this again until I participate with you like in the kingdom of God. And so when we this morning hold these elements in our hands, it is a foretaste of the banquet to come in eternity. It gives us hope for the day that is awaiting us. You know, in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about a great wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's the coming together of Christ and his bride, the church. And it's going to be the greatest feast that we're ever going to see. And some of us, we've seen a lot of great feasts, you know. But we're told, the Bible tells us that represented at this feast is going to be someone, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And you think about all like the different foods of all these different ethnicities. You know, you're going to have like amazing Mexican food probably and Chinese food and Mediterranean food, I guess. Like I'm not a huge fan. But like, you know, this is going to be like this. Guys, I know we, we kind of laugh and that's okay because there's a time for somberness, but there's a time for rejoicing. We long for this day. And this reminds us that that day is coming. That day, Revelation 21, read it tonight. That there's a day coming that we're told that Jesus is gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. And this morning, you might have a lot of tears from the sorrow and the pain that you're going through. But this reminds us that there is a day coming that he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's a day coming, church, that we will experience no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. The former things have passed away and Jesus says, I am making all things new. Amen? And so this morning, as, as, as we sing this intentional time, just consider Jesus. Consider this. Examine your heart. Look forward to the day that we eat and drink in the kingdom of God with Jesus face to face. Amen. And so after we do this, you can, you can sit, but we just sit and we're going to examine. You can eat and drink together or on your own. We're not going to do it together this morning. And then our prayer team is going to come forward. And you can stand, if you feel led to stand, you need to kneel, it might be harder in the middle section. You just wanna kneel, just get away with the Lord. We're gonna worship Him in reverence and awe, but also we're gonna rejoice. There's gonna be rejoicing in this next song. As we hail, all hail King Jesus. But we'll have prayer teams up here. And you're just like, if there's things in your life that you're like, I need to confess these things. Like it's one thing to examine our hearts and to say, God, search me and know me and forgive me. But like, there are some things that you just need accountability. You're like, I need to confess. Listen, it doesn't matter what the sin is in your life. Jesus will forgive you. And if you don't know Jesus, you're like, I got dragged to church this morning and I've never committed my life to Jesus, but I want that forgiveness of sin that you're talking about. I want that newness of life. All I am experiencing in life is is sorrow, sickness, sin, and shame, and remorse, and guilt. And you're like, I want to be forgiven. Listen, this is your day. This is your day to say yes to Jesus and accept and receive his forgiveness of sin. And then you get to participate with us in receiving and celebrating in this. And so I'm gonna be up here. First, I'm gonna do a little examination of my own heart. And I'm gonna receive the elements with you and my wife. But then if you need prayer for anything, but if you wanna give your life to Jesus, this is our day to say yes to Jesus and to experience the forgiveness of sin and walk in the newness of life. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.